All right, good afternoon. Pastor, I'd say for uh, impromptu singing, those girls were almost as good as you. Yeah. That's, I mean, almost. Almost. Uh, Matt, grab your Bible. Uh, let's see, I don't know, Acts uh, 13, uh, Philippians 3. We'll see, see where we go here, trying to close this out. Um, honestly, it's, it's just been a huge blessing. And, and frankly, it's, uh, we could stop right now. I don't think we'd go home empty by any means. Uh, let me also say quickly in the, to those of you that just said you want more preaching a minute ago when he asked, uh, in the words of one of my favorite theologians, Rocky Balboa, you lie nice. Say, why are you going last? I, you know, I don't know. The devil will play tricks on you. You know, you save the best for last, but you're also supposed to put your best foot forward. So I don't, I'm just bringing up the rear if that's how you look at it. I mean, there's really no, no right way to look at it. Um, while you're maybe getting those verses, let me read something for you. In Genesis chapter 20, this is where Abraham and Sarah, they sojourn in the country of Gerar. And um, if you know the story, Abraham... Uh, lies about Sarah being his wife, and Abimelech, this this king there, takes Sarah to himself, and the Lord appears to Abimelech, um, and he says to him in a dream, he says, behold, thou art but a dead man, and the the passage goes on, and Abimelech pleads for himself, Uh, he said, you know, she said that, uh, he said she was his sister, and even she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands, have I done this? And then what's amazing to me, God answers back to him and God says to him, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thine heart. You know, we focus a lot on the fact that the heart is wicked. And I don't know, sometimes I think of it almost just in a humorous sense. Can you imagine God coming to you and calling you out on something. We've already seen multiple times even today, you know, how people generally respond when they're in the presence of God. And it's not boasting about your own integrity, is it? Can you imagine he comes and calls you out on something and it just so happens the one thing he calls you out on is something you're legitimately innocent of. And God agrees with him about it. He says, I, I know that you did that in the integrity of your heart. So the first question to ask is, does God know your heart? Now, this is the simple question tonight, because I think probably everyone here, and if not uh, already in in agreement, I I hope that you would be convinced by the scriptures that God knows your heart. In fact, he knows it better than you do. Job said, now I know that no thought can be withheld from thee. You can't even think something that God can't know. So God definitely knows our heart. And really the question that I want to ask and close out with is, do we know his heart? Do we know his heart? Um, if, you're, if you had uh, Acts 13, verse 22 there, uh, God is responding about how he had to set Saul aside and raise up David. And in verse 22, he says, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. 
to me, that's a tall order. But this is a testimony of David given by God himself. He said, that is a man after my own heart. Oh, God knows our heart. But do we know his? So I want to be a man after God's own heart. Okay. I'm glad that you do. Glad that that's something you would desire. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. I think I might have given you that verse already. Just look at that first phrase there. It says, that I may know him. That I may know him. Do we really want to know God? Of course, if you go on in that verse, it talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. That might be part of the reason that some of us don't want to know him any better than we do. God knows our heart. Do we know his? How do you do that? You need to love what God loves. Love what God loves. And you've heard already quite a bit of this this evening, so I'm not going to repeat literally many of the verses that I had laid out, and particularly in this first point that we've already, uh, already hit today. But number one, let me give you three things, and these aren't the three things, but they're three things that God's kind of laid on my heart preparing this. Number one is that God loves to receive the glory and worship, and he's deserving of it. He's deserving of all of it. Exodus 34, 14 says that his name is jealous and that he is a jealous God. Now, amongst human beings, jealousy is not generally regarded as a a great character trait. But God is our creator. He is almighty. He is perfect in beauty and majesty, and he is worthy of all the praise and worship that we give him. And he is desirous of it. He loves to receive it. He warns us about turning aside and serving other gods. He tells us in Psalm 29, verse 2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. See, sometimes we might think, well, I want to worship the Lord, and we have some sort of modern, uh, you know, rock concert style uh, worship service going on, and we think that worship is a feeling that we work up. But God receives the worship of man in holiness, and God considers holiness beautiful. So if we are a man or woman, as the case may be, after the heart of God, Are we worshiping him in the beauty of holiness? Are we giving him the glory that is due unto his name? And so often we have that connotation of worship as, you know, just raising up hands in a service or a contemporary style of music or what have you. Worship is found in a clean life. Worship is found in sacrifice. Worship is found in getting into God's book seeking after him day in and day out, sometimes when it just seems like drudgery, quite frankly. We read in Luke chapter 4, also in Matthew chapter 4, that Satan desires to have this worship that only God is worthy of. If you remember the story where Jesus is tempted there in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days, Satan says, if you'll just but fall down and worship me. We've already seen multiple times in the scripture, somebody falls down at the feet of whether it be an angel or even another man in some cases and uh, starts to offer worship and they always say, wait, 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 you only worship God. But when people fell at the feet of Jesus, he didn't correct them because he is God and he is worthy of that worship. He desires that worship. Go to Revelation chapter 22, quickly, Revelation 22. This world is constantly 
trying to pull you in. If he can't get you to say it outright, Satan's going to try to capture your worship in many other ways. Revelation 22 and verse 9 says, Then said he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Period. Full stop. He's the only one that is deserving of our worship. Go over to John chapter 10. John 10. God loves to receive the worship and the praise that is due him. Another thing that God loves is God loves men. He loves the souls of mankind. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He sacrificed himself for us. And not just for us alone. I mean, Paul said in Galatians Chapter 2, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, he's making it personal. But he was also equally plain over in Romans chapter 10 where he's saying that the sacrifice of Christ is for all men. He died for all men and all may be partakers of this gift, but people have a difficult time with that. Difficult time with the judgment of God. They want to create this idea of a God that they've imagined in their minds, as we just talked about imagination. A lot of people say they love God, but they love a God that they've dreamed up. And it's somewhat, though, uh, easy to understand when they've been lied to, uh, concocted various things. They look at what they are as portrayed as Christianity. Uh, One comedian named George Carlin some of you may know who he is. He said this. He said, religion has actually convinced people that there is an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of the day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he doesn't want you to do. And if you do any of these things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever until the end of time. But he loves you. See how he's trying to twist that? what he's trying to do, play on the words, play on people's feelings and emotion. Now, hell is a very real place where God does send unrepentant mankind. It's not a joke. The skeptics and the scoffers may write things like George Carlin did and try to worm their way out of it. It's not a place where uh, the living is easy and the loving is free, as some songwriter has said, where all their friends are going to be, or they'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Nope, it's a place of darkness. It's a place of loss forever and not something to joke about. But see, they can't seem to fathom, well, how could a loving God send someone there? And so there's the disconnect in their mind that God doesn't really love mankind, but he does. He tells us over and over in the scriptures, why will you die? I put before you life and death. Choose life, God is saying. I heard someone say the other day, well, where was God when my child died? And I thought the response that I heard to it was, was brilliant. The person who was working with them said, well, he was in the same place that he was when his child died, sitting on his throne in heaven, showing grace unto the sons of men, working out salvation. 
Let me ask you this. Would you think much of a judge who just let all crime go? See, people hate the idea that God is going to judge sin. When it comes to them, all they see is, well, why is God so mean? But if your child were murdered and the murderer were caught and put on trial, what would you think of the judge that said, ah, dismissed, case dismissed, I'm not not interested in it? See, the opposite of love is not necessarily hate, but indifference. And God is not indifferent toward our sin, though he loves man. So how do I know he loved me? Look at the cross. If he could have saved you some other way, he would have. Jesus pleaded, if there's any other way, right? Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless. Not my will, but thy will be done. Go to Revelation 22 again if you're... Oh, wait, we need John 10. Revelation 22. See, but there's good news. That though hell is real, and though God is serious about sin and not indifferent to it, God's also made the way of escape. And I love this passage. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's a great Scottish preacher of the 1800s named Horatio Bonar. And he was known uh, he preached some conferences for Moody, and uh, he was known as being very, uh, how did they put it? His sermons lacked any attempt at originality, I think is one of the things that was said about him. He was a man that simply opened the scriptures, had a passion for God, and preached Jesus Christ. And he ended one time with this verse, and he said, Dear friends, whosoever, that means you. Whosoever will, does that mean you? God's willing. If you want to be after his heart, if you want to know what he loves, he loves mankind. He died to save mankind. He wants us to take his message to mankind. Whosoever will. And thirdly, go to Psalm 138, and we'll wrap this up. Psalm 138. God loves to receive the praise and the worship that he's due. And God loves the souls of men. Psalm 138, verse 2, God loves his word. Verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. If you know anything about the name of Jesus Christ in the scripture, that's a pretty incredible statement. And I don't think it's that the Bible is trying to pit one against the other in any sort of way. But God's view of the value of his word cannot be overstated. God loves his word. His son, of course, as we learn in the scripture, is called the word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Revelation 19.13 says he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. God loves his son. God loves his word. His word. You might know that Psalm chapter 119 is the longest verse in the Bible. And you might also know that 
Some people will debate one or two of the verses because they don't use the common words that are found in the rest of them, but every verse of that chapter speaks about the importance of the word of God. It's broken into 22 sections of eight verses, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But you might not know that Psalm 119 also mentions the word heart more than any other chapter in the Bible. In fact, the 119th letter in Psalm 119 is the A in the word heart in verse 2. Now, I'll tell on myself a little bit as just a, a little bit of comic relief as well. What I wanted to say, because I think it would be it's just such a nice illustration, is that Psalm 119, talking about the word of God and containing more references to the word heart than any other chapter, is more than twice as long as any other chapter in the Bible. And I actually started to put that in my notes, and I was kind of doing a mental check. You know, there's 176 verses in Psalm 119, so half of that's 88. I'm like, I don't, think, I don't recall any chapters that have more than 88 verses. And thankfully, I decided to check. And it took me a few minutes because I went to a few that I knew were particularly long passages. I'm like 50, 70. I'm like, no, nah, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. But as it turns out, in fact, turn here because I want to show you just what this did to me. Go to Numbers chapter 7. Heart is also mentioned 119 in 119 different verses in the Psalms. Just kind of some interesting thought there for you. But Numbers chapter 7, right? 88 is half. So I thought, okay, well, if there's a chapter with 90 verses, clearly that's a problem, 95. But no, how many, if it had 88 even, then it would be exactly half, right? And I'd say, oh, okay, I could still say Psalm 119 is twice as long as any other chapter. No, how many verses in Numbers chapter 7? 89. That was just like, certainly if you're a preacher, you know, sometimes an illustration is just so good, you got to figure out a way to use it. And I was like, who put the verse numbers in here and did that? That's wrong. And then here's what makes it worse now. Here's what makes it worse. If you read through here, the sentence that starts in 89 should, could easily, verse 89 could easily be verse 1 of chapter 8. Okay, because it's talking about when Moses was gone into the tabernacle, and then in verse, uh, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 8, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I mean, it would be no problem. It literally felt in that moment like someone had said, I know what Brad's going to do in 2023. He's going to try to say that Psalm 119 is twice long. He goes, nope, boop, and just move. It doesn't need to be there. That verse could easily be in chapter 8. My illustration would have worked much better. But it's almost twice as long as every other chapter in the Bible. And it does talk about the word of God in every verse, and it does talk about heart. God's heart. He loves to get the glory. He loves the souls of men. And he loves his word. He loves it. I know we already have a theme for 2024, but I guess my personal theme is to know him more in 2024. To get to be a, a person after God's heart, we need to know what God loves. You ever have somebody that shares some common bond with you? And you sort of have like immediate like friendship or a recognition there, almost like a kindred spirit. I mean, in some cases it's, it's trivial. Like you meet somebody, you have a shared, uh, maybe a sports team that you both like. You're like, oh, okay, hey, we've got some com camaraderie or something we can kind of talk about. 
Sometimes it's more than that. Um, you know, if I meet somebody that's, who's a Marine, let's say, I mean, there's plenty of Marines that I probably wouldn't want to spend, you know, five minutes with, but uh, if they're a Marine, I, I have this instant sort of camaraderie at some level. We, we have that shared. Um, if you've ever done much traveling, especially if you've been in the third world, and maybe you didn't have a lot of Americans with you, as I've had this happen to me a couple of times, and you come across someone from America, it's like, I, I don't know what is there just something about the fact that you can sit down, you can talk without a translator, and talk about the stuff back home. It's just this feeling of camaraderie that you have, uh, have in common, this shared experience. Um, you ever want to get you know, to a mother's heart? Well, lavish some love on her children. Boy, that just that builds a bond almost instantly. You ever wonder why some Christians maybe seem to be blessed, and yet you can see all these other flaws or areas where they just they don't have this right, they don't have that right. You know, was David a perfect man? Well, I mean, perfect murdering adulterer, I guess. So why did God call him a man after my own heart? I wondered, thinking about these are just kind of really three big categories of things, right? Some people have a more charismatic uh, way about them in their Christian life. And I don't mean, you know, weird doctrinal stuff, but I'm saying whether it's lifting hands or just the way that they worship. And maybe, you know, they're not the greatest soul winner and they're, they're not deep in doctrine, but they genuinely love and worship God with all their heart. And I'm not saying that's an excuse to not be well-rounded, but God sees something in them that he likes, see? That's a person after his heart. Whether it's someone that shares a sports team with you or someone who served alongside you or someone who just loves your children, you may be at odds with that person in any number of areas, but somehow you see there's a connection. You have a warmth toward that person because they share a love that you share. Some of the fundamentalist circles, and they're some of the biggest soul winners there are, right? Now, maybe they're not worshiping as perfectly as others, and maybe we think they're doctrinally shallow, but they're out to win a lost world, and that gets the heart of God. God loves that. In Bible-believing circles like we are, we, you know, we'd, uh, someone raises their hand or even hints at being Pentecostal, and we've got them shot down before they have time to switch hands, right? And we may or may not be top of the class in soul winning. Our focus tends to be on a love for this book and not changing it, believing as, as it stands. And you know what? God loves that. It's not to praise ourselves. I'm simply saying this. God knows our heart, but do we know his? And this has not been exhaustive by any stretch, but get in on things that God loves. God loves to receive the praise and worship that's due him and him alone. God loves the souls of men, and God loves his word. Let's be about that in 2024. Thanks for your time.